Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help this morning. We pray that you would show us Jesus. And we pray that through that, you might reveal yourself to us, that we might know you deeply and intimately. And we ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you type the question, how many different religions are there in the world today? If you type that question into Google, and the answer you get is this. There are an estimated 4,200 different religions in the world today. 4,200. It's quite a large number, isn't it? And of course, we also know that it's even more complicated than that because we could take any one of those religions and uh, we realise that they can be broken down into a whole number of different subgroups as well. For example, in Christianity, uh, there are six major denominational blocks Perhaps even within that, um, 40 major denominational divisions. And of course, within each of those, we know there are a number of sub-subgroups within them as well. Uh, so a huge number of different groups. And then if we add to the number of religions and denominations, uh, all the hundreds and, or even thousands of non-religious or, or secular the- theologies or philosophies or worldviews, then the number's going to get enormous. Thousands and thousands of different ways of viewing the world. Now, if we were, if we were talking about different kinds of cooking, uh, or different kinds of art, or different kinds of music, say, we might think, great, how lovely. How lovely that there's all this kind of variety and diversity in the world. So much to go out and enjoy and explore. And uh, while some do try to, to treat religions and philosophies that kind of way, it won't really do, will it? Will it? Because it doesn't really make much sense because most of those religions or philosophies or worldviews contain some claim to the truth. And many contain some claim to be the way, the way to know God, the God who rules over all and created the cosmos. And of course, that's potentially a problem, isn't it? An embarrassment. I heard one atheist put it like this, in the face of so many competing and conflicting claims, the most reasonable response is to say, the chances are they're all wrong. The chances are they're all wrong. And certainly I think we feel this quite keenly, don't we, in such company with so much variety around us, religiously and philosophically. It feels like a really bold thing, a difficult thing to stand up and say, I'm a Christian and I believe we, we uniquely have all the answers. (coughs) Well, it is a hard thing to say, but this morning I do want to encourage us to hold our nerve. And I want us to rediscover what Christians began to rediscover in a fresh way uh, perhaps 500 years ago. As uh, Peter's already uh, mentioned this morning, this year it's the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation. Now from the outside, I guess the the Reformation looks like just another example of, of religion gone wrong, religious tribalism and division. But the reformers realised two vitally important things and they'd be good for us to rediscover as well. The first is this. If there's going to be an answer to all these big questions of life, (coughs) it can't really be an answer that comes from us. It can't be an answer that we make up. 
It has to come from the outside, from above, as the Bible puts it, from God himself. And the second thing is this. If there is a God, and if he is going to supply the answer to us, then it's really unlikely that it's going to be a complex answer, a multiple answer. It's much more likely that the answer he's going to give is going to be beautifully simple. And the answer the reformers rediscovered through the Bible was that beautifully simple answer. It was Jesus Christ. We find all the answers to all the questions that we might have in one person, the Son sent from the Father. He is God's beautifully simple answer. Now, a very good, but uh, although it's quite a, quite a modern way of putting it, a very good way of summarizing all of this Reformation uh, teaching is that the answers to the big questions of life are by Scripture alone. There are five of these, by Scripture alone, grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. But I think if we had to pick, any, pick one of those to kind of summarize everything, uh, the one of those that, from which everything else kind of flows, it would be all of this is by Christ alone. That is the heart of the Christianity, the Christian message. That is the heart of what God is doing, bringing an answer to us. And that's the title of the, the short ser- sermon series we're starting today. Christ alone. But of course, what, does, what does it then mean for Jesus to be the Christ? Well, way back in the 4th century, so back even beyond the Reformation, way back in the 4th century, the Christian teacher Eusebius suggested this, that it means that Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king. Uh, those are sometimes called the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And they played a really key role in the theology of the Reformation. And so over three Sundays, we're going to look at each of those in turn. Christ as prophet, Christ as, Christ as priest, and then Christ as king. Beginning today with Christ as prophet. He is, as Eusebius himself put it, the supreme prophet of prophets. Supremely trustworthy. Through whom we can truly know God. Indeed, through whom alone we can truly know God. So first of all then, as Eusebius said, Christ is the supreme prophet of prophets. And it would be very helpful at this point if you could put some sort of marker in John chapter 14, which we'll come back to a little later. And turn back to the first of our readings from Deuteronomy chapter 18. You'll find that on page 197 in the Church Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we're going to look at just a few verses from verse 15 onwards. Now what, you might ask, exactly is a prophet? I suppose we might think of some of the great prophets of the Old Testament, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But actually the pattern for all the prophets in the Bible is shown here in Moses. And we find in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses at work. Moses at work as a prophet. He's speaking God's words to the people. He's revealing God's character and will in all sorts of different ways. And in this part of Deuteronomy, he's teaching his people 
how to live as God's people. I suppose one question that then raises is, what are the people going to do when Moses is gone? If he plays this the kind of essential role in communicating the words of God to the people, what are they going to do when he's gone? Well, this is the promise that the Lord God makes through Moses in verse 15. Verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. I guess that raises another question, doesn't it, uh, that we might have about this. Why isn't God speaking to the people directly? Why does he need to speak to them through a prophet? And then why do they need another prophet? Well, Moses reminds us of the answer to that. So verse 16, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. Uh, That's at at Sinai. Uh, On the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire anymore or we will die. See, what the people discovered is that uh, listening directly from God is a rather terrifying business. The Lord is too terrifyingly holy, they found, and great to engage with directly. So he speaks through a prophet to protect them. That's quite an interesting idea, isn't it? I guess we could try this, this method next time we write a letter of e- or email of complaint to someone. Something like this, dear sir or madam, uh, I have chosen to engage with you in writing because I fear if I were to engage with you in person, I might consume you in my wrath. (laughs) And we could do that next time we write a complaining uh, letter. I don't think we should do really because of course we don't really have that kind of status. We are not God. It might be quite effective. We might get perhaps better internet Uh, service providers, if we all did that. However, we shouldn't do that because we are not God. But for God, speaking through an intermediary is a kindness. It's him accommodating himself to us out of love. That's why he spoke through the prophets. And that's why he promises here another prophet, prophet, verse 18, I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will put my words in his mouth. That pretty much sums up what it means to be a prophet. Now we could turn to many places in the New Testament to see that Jesus is the one about whom Moses spoke. Uh, But today we're going to turn to John's gospel. Uh, John's gospel. So if you turn back to John chapter 14, we could, I think, probably turn pretty much anywhere in John's gospel to see all of this. Um, This is our second point this morning. Jesus is so much the prophet of prophets, the supreme prophet of prophets, so much the prophet that was promised through Moses that in Christ the prophet, we can truly, deeply know God. In Christ the prophet, we can truly know God. So let's turn back to this chapter, chapter 14 of John, and let's see for ourselves that Jesus came to perform the role of a prophet, speaking the words of God, but also that he goes far beyond the role of any prophet. Now, very helpfully, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pete took us through the background to this part of John's Gospel. Uh, The setting, you might remember, is on a a Thursday evening. Uh, We're 2,000 years ago. It's the night before Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, and he's having a final meal with his disciples. And John tells us a little earlier than this that Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. 
So, if you like, this is his last extended opportunity to explain to his disciples what's about to happen and to prepare them for him leaving them. And indeed, to prepare them for life without him sort of physically with them in person. Now, perhaps not very surprisingly, the disciples really don't understand what he's doing or saying. And they respond, we find, with some gloriously dim-witted questions and statements, which is great. We're really relieved that they did so, and we're really happy that John has recorded those questions and statements for us. We love them for saying those things or asking those questions because they're the sort of questions or, or things that we might say too. And we need Jesus' patient answers just as much as they did. So for example, Peter has already asked this. He's asked, where are you going? Why can't I follow? And Jesus has answered, Peter, I, this part, this part I have to do alone. You know, I have to go to the cross. I have to go through the cross to the resurrection, back to my Father. I have to do this alone. But know that this is going to be for your sake. I'm going there to prepare a place for you so you can follow later. Then Thomas has butted in. But we don't know the way. We don't know the way. And Jesus has said, chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus has ended his answer to, to Thomas by saying this. He says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And this is where Philip steps in. You see, Philip has, has clearly not got that. He's not, clearly not heard or understood what Jesus has just said. And this is what he says. This is Philip's statement. Philip said, verse 8, Lord, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Now, before we look at Jesus' response to this, I do want to put in a good word for Philip here. His question, question does actually some, reveal some rather good things about him. Uh, to start with, you can see that he really does want to see and know God. He wants to see and know God as Father. And as such, he represents that good part of all of us, which does want to know God, know him intimately, and reconnect with him. You could also say that Philip has a very high view of Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord. And he knows that Jesus is somehow powerful, capable of revealing the Father, God the Father, in some kind of way. He just wants Jesus to get on with it before, before he disappears. Nevertheless, it's also very clear when we look at the response Jesus gives that Philip doesn't have a high enough view of Jesus. His view is not high enough. Let me read from verse 9. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me, doing, who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Uh, now take a look first at what Jesus says in the middle of verse 10 here. The words I say to you are not just my own. The words I say to you are not just my own. As we've seen just a little earlier, that's pretty much the very definition of a prophet. 
He had God's words in his mouth. Uh, This is, as Jesus says, God at work, doing things with words, doing powerful things, bringing his purposes about. But here we're seeing God at work in a much more direct way than how he worked through the prophets. How so? Well, look again. The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Or as he says at the beginning of the verse, or again in verse 11, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Mind-bending. See, engaging with Jesus is much more than just engaging with words passed on from God. It's all taking place at a much, much deeper level. Engaging with Jesus is engaging with God. That's the extraordinary and amazing thing. In fact, the only difference we see here between father and son is that one is father and the other is son. Otherwise, they're one and the same. And it is that marvelous summary, isn't it, that Jesus gives in verse 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John doesn't tell us how Philip reacted to all of this, but it would have been great to have been there and just to watch his expression, I think. Great to have been a fly on the wall at the the time. I imagine if, if Philip had been able to process the magnitude of what Jesus has just said, his jaw would have absolutely have been on the floor. It is that moment when you realize that moment when you realize the person you thought rather good at talking about God actually is God. Now, there's much more that Jesus says here that we could uh, look at. He goes on to talk about some of the implications of all of this, some of the implications of knowing him and and knowing this work of the Father so closely and intimately, how, how that means we can participate in what he's doing, continuing it, even expanding it in good ways. And Jesus goes on to talk about how we can know God even when he, Jesus, is, is not physically with us. We can know him, uh, verses 16 and 17, through another one like him, that the spirit of truth. So Jesus goes on to say many more things here, but I just want to pause at this point and, and dwell on this big thing, this momentous confirmation that in Jesus Christ we can have a real, true and even intimate knowledge of God. We can have access to him. We can engage with him. We can know him. So what's stopping us? I suppose that's the big question, isn't it? What's stopping us if that opportunity is there in front of us? Well, let's consider three potential barriers to knowing God in Christ. And uh, the first, I guess, is ignorance. This, of course, was Philip's problem. Uh, We can see that he wanted to know God. Uh, He wanted to be able to relate to to God directly, intimately, as his father. He just didn't recognize that with Jesus there in front of him, he already could. The answer was literally staring him in the face. And I wonder if there might be uh, one or two here this morning like him. So perhaps you've been coming week after week, Uh, Year after year, hearing us say from the front that in Jesus Christ, we can truly know the God of the universe. Um, I know that if you've come every week, you will have heard that every week because every week you'll have heard from the Bible and it's the consistent message of the Bible from start to finish. 
that in Jesus Christ we can truly know the God of the universe. Perhaps you've heard that ten times, hundred times, a thousand times. But for whatever reason, it hasn't quite clicked yet. The, the penny hasn't quite dropped for whatever reason. Well, it could at any time, by God's grace, even today. And you can be sure that we'll keep on saying it. So that's the first barrier. The second barrier, I think, is deception or confusion. We do need to know. We do need to know that there are people out there trying to keep us away from this amazing truth, trying to keep us away from freely knowing God in Christ. And that could be for many reasons. It could be for the, because they are likewise deceived, or it could even be for personal gain. Now, if that sounds a little too far-fetched, too much like a, a conspiracy theory to you, uh, you should know that it's actually quite common for people to try to gain personally from things that are important, but yet free. A few years ago, you might remember, there was a concerted police clampdown on what are called copycat websites, websites that set themselves up to look like official government websites, offering what are normally free government services, uh, but charging for them, or, or overcharging for something as well. Uh, I had experience of this a few years ago when I, I, I bought a fishing license online and uh, realized rather too late that the website I was using was not the official one and I'd be charged too much by someone putting, my, putting themselves between me and what I wanted. And I felt a right numpty when I realized that. But at least I'd only lost £2.50, uh, so it wasn't too bad. The stakes are rather higher, however, when it comes to our access to knowing God. It's rather more important, isn't it? See, the problem is it's always been a temptation, has always been a temptation for the institutional church to make God more inaccessible, more mysterious than he actually is. I'll think about why they might do that in a moment, but sometimes you can see this even sort of uh, built into church architecture. Uh, some church buildings still have what are called their medieval rood screens, which are, are screens that go across the middle of the church building. They were there to separate out the public, keep Joe public at a distance. It was all part of the, the clergy, the institution saying, look, you can know God, a little at least, but you have to do it through us. It gave the clergy and the church hierarchy a certain amount of power then, a status, a role, and yes, money, income, wealth. These things that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And it was against just such abuses that Martin Luther was campaigning 500 years ago. Exactly those kinds of things, trying to keep the public out and profiting from it. And that then triggered the chain of events that led to the Reformation. But it's not just a problem for the past. We need to realize that there are church leaders and others trying to, to pull the same trick today. Trying to offer us something which superficially might look quite good. It might look quite religious or spiritual. But if these things, if they're, if they're not pointing us to Christ, well, we have to say, it's a con. It's a con. It's like one of those false websites keeping us away from what we want, cheating us, indeed often at a high price. 
And uh, with so much deception going on around us, uh, we therefore do need to be careful and help one another to be careful uh, to exercise some discernment. I think it should go like this. In a world where there's so much religious activity uh, and we're being invited to partake in it, I think there is a very simple and useful question to ask every time that happens, every time we encounter something new. And it's this. It's to ask, are you offering me me Christ? Are you offering me Christ? And if the answer to that is no, or not quite, then we're not interested. But thirdly, I wonder if there's actually a deeper barrier to us finding a true knowledge of God in Christ. And it's fear. Fear of what we might discover. You know, we kind of know it would be good to know God, deep down. But we also suspect, rightly, that if we were to know him, it would turn our lives upside down. And so we're afraid. We're afraid of losing what's familiar to us. Even if we realize that what we have isn't really much good and has no future to it, well, it's ours, isn't it? It sort of feels comfortable. We've got used to it. So again, if that is you here this morning, you need to listen to those around you who have gone for this, who have taken the plunge, as it were. Ask them directly, was it worth it? You know, it's a risky thing to do, isn't it? It's a costly thing to do, but was it worth it? Or or listen to the Apostle Paul as he reflects on his experience of uh, putting aside the things he, he once had and finding Christ. He puts it like this. He said, I now consider everything a loss, everything I did have, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish. So we need to hear that. And as we hear that, we also need to realize there's there's no point in trying to find another way to know God. There is no other way. And this is our final point this morning. I guess probably the most controversial. So the good news is, The good news is that in Christ, yes, we can truly know God. We do have that access, but the qualification is only in Christ. Only in Christ can we truly know God. And of course, it's this part that people don't like. We live in a culture that really, really doesn't like this idea. A culture that values, what, autonomy, self-determination, religious plurality, values those things very, very highly. And for me or any other Christian to claim there's only one way to know God and it is, so to speak, our way. For me to say that is very likely to provoke instinctively a very negative response. However, it's a truth that cannot be avoided. Uh, John begins his gospel account of Jesus Christ by saying this about him. This is chapter one, verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. See, what John is saying back there is that naturally we do not see God. We do not know him. We do not naturally relate to him. We're estranged from him. 
And it doesn't matter which country you come from, which social class, which family, which religious background, which nation, which political persuasion, which gender or sex, which kind of sexuality, which ethnicity. When it comes to not knowing God, there is absolute equality and inclusivity. We don't know him, but... But then Jesus changed that. God, the one and only, that's Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And John is very, very strongly implying, as he says that, that this is the one thing, the only thing, that changes things to make God knowable. Which actually makes sense if you read on in John's Gospel from that point, and you discover just how costly it was to make Jesus, for, for Jesus to make God known. So we discover that as we were reflecting on last week over the Easter weekend, how costly it was. We have to ask, if knowing God were possible any other way, why would Jesus have had to go through that? Why would he have had to do what he did? In fact, the more we think about it, what doesn't make sense here is, our, is that sense of outrage that we have at the idea the sense of outrage that are being told that there is only one way to know God. Just imagine this scenario for a moment. Imagine you're in a hotel uh, on one of the upper floors of the hotel and a fire has started in one of the floors below that's raging in the building beneath you. You're in a, a large, long room with multiple windows down one side and the windows are now your only hope your only hope of getting out of the building alive. And not surprisingly, there are groups of people gathered around each one of the windows, crying out desperately for help. Suddenly, at the window that you're next to, a fireman appears with an escape slide. Now, if this were for real, I think you wouldn't feel the slightest hesitation or embarrassment at shouting out, Hooray! Over here! They're here. Everyone, everyone gather over here. And let's suppose that there is indeed space for everyone to get out. I think everyone in that room would be very happy to leave where they were, uh, leave their windows, and join you at yours. But now suppose those windows represent the the multiple different religions or or philosophies or worldviews, the the ones I was talking about at the beginning, those 4,200 religions, all those different denominations and philosophies. Now the reaction that you get as you cry out, everyone over here, everyone gather over here, now it's rather more frosty. Some people are outraged that you could say such a thing. How could you? How dare you? How dare you stand there and talk about your window as if it was the only window? Many others, I guess, would simply ignore you. They're comfortable where they are. They know where they come from, and no one's going to move them. Now, if that's anything like the situation that we're in as Christians today, I guess there are two really big temptations, aren't there? The first one would be to compromise. So we say, in effect, fine, it's all fine, let's not worry, stay at your window, I'm sure it'll be okay. The second, perhaps, would be 
just to ignore everyone else in the room altogether and to close inwards on ourselves, huddled around our own window, ignoring the rest of the room. But of course, neither way would it express the love that we should be showing to everyone else there. So what should we do? What should we do? Well, first, perhaps we look back at our window and check. You know, we make sure that we got this right. That's precisely what we've been trying to do this morning. So we've turned back to the scriptures uh, to see Jesus Christ. And we have the confirmation, yes, it is the right place to be. Yes, it is the only window with a secure means of escape, as we'll be thinking about much more next week. Yes, it does give us a unique access to knowing God. Jesus Christ is the supreme prophet of prophets. More than that, if we know him, then we can truly know God. See him, says Jesus, and we have seen the Father. And John's been quite blunt about it, quite frank about all the alternatives. All those thousands of religions and philosophies of all their claims, are they true? No, says John, they are not. Through those windows, no one has ever seen God. But, but things have changed. But there is now a way to know him truly. But Jesus, God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. It is, as the reformer suspected, a beautifully simple answer. So let's embrace God's wonderfully simple answer. And let's pray. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you that in Jesus Christ you have made yourself knowable. You have made yourself known. We can know you intimately. What an amazing possibility and truth that is. So we pray that you would help us to renew our confidence in that, to seek it eagerly, to seek him eagerly and with great compassion to help others to do so as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.